2: It feels like the world that we once knew is careening out of control.
3: Nearly half of Greenland's ice sheet began melting this week after an unprecedented warm spell hit the Arctic region.
2: And we begin this morning with the latest on those devastating California wildfires. The death toll has risen to at least...
3: A research base in the Antarctic has recorded the hottest temperature ever for the continent amid global alarm over the climate change crisis.
2: But then what we've done to the planet is unprecedented. We've altered it on a grand scale, and the news about climate change is moving from prediction to description.
1: For a long time, scientists have been warning us we're going to see increased frequency and magnitude of these disasters. And so now I think we're, we're at that pivotal moment in time where people are just starting to figure out what do we actually do? What are our options and what are our risks, and how do we address some of these big issues that are costing hundreds of billions of dollars? Some communities have no choice but to adapt, and we'll discuss that. But there's more,
2: because another global crisis is demanding our attention.
4: Turn Turnout to the coronavirus outbreak, the latest on that, a new case confirmed right here in the U.S. One of
2: the is climate change amplifying the spread of infectious disease? I'm Seth Shostak.
3: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute. In this episode, Climate Changed, What It Means to Adapt to the New Normal. A huge portion of California is under a fire alert tonight. The warnings cover 25 million of the state's 40 million people. We're talking about hot, dry, and windy weather that is whipping up extremely dangerous fire conditions. A new fire broke out. The
2: wildfire season here in Northern California used to be just that a season. And as long as I've lived here, the fires have come in the fall when dry winds blow across the brush that has dried out from the summer. But here's how Molly says she learned in November 2018 that California's wildfire season had changed dramatically.
3: One night, I woke up in the wee hours to the smell of smoke. I popped out of bed and I searched the house for its source. Nothing was burning, so I went back to bed thinking I had hallucinated the smell, but I felt deeply uneasy. The next morning, I learned that a massive wildfire had started in Butte County, 160 miles north of us in Oakland. The smoke and tiny particulates had drifted over five counties. Our sky was red. The air quality of the San Francisco Bay Area had become the most polluted in the world, worse than Beijing, known for its suffocating gray haze. Health officials warned us not to go outside. There was an uptick in emergency room visits by asthmatics, the elderly, and children. I had never experienced anything like this. It was haunting, neighbors grocery shopping and riding the subway with masks on. It seemed almost apocalyptic, but it wasn't for those of us without respiratory problems. It was two weeks of inconvenience before the rains drenched the fire up north and the air cleared. But in Butte County, it was a different story. The wildfire was the deadliest and most destructive in California history. The entire town of Paradise was wiped out. But a year earlier, almost exactly a year earlier, another fire had been crowned the most destructive wildfire in California history. It devastated the city of Santa Rosa. There have always been terrible wildfires in California, but it wasn't until the masks came on in our neighborhood that the era of climate emergency in California felt real.
2: James Randerson, a University of California-Irvine Earth System scientist, says that California's wildfire season has indeed changed. No longer limited to a few months, wildfire season is now year-round, part of the changing nature of fires around the globe. We spoke with him in December 2019, and he summed up that year's fire season.
0: This year was really unusual for fires. There was a massive fire season in Amazonia that was driven by deforestation that had happened in the previous six to 12 months. And the fire patterns around the world are changing. We've been studying this using satellite data from NASA, looking at the last 20 years from two satellites, Aqua and Terra, and we see an intensification of fires in forests, but also counterintuitively a loss of fire from grasslands. And they're both a concern. We've seen a loss of grassland fires across the Silk Road areas and also across the savannas of Africa. And that's where we think there's an expansion of agriculture. And it's really a threat because these natural grasslands are ancient and fires really critical for maintaining the habitat for lions, for different animals in the ecosystem. And so with more fragmentation, the fires are disappearing. And a little bit of fragmentation can actually really have a strong effect, nonlinear effect, on fires.
3: Let's go through what some of the causes are. I mean, you, okay. you mentioned um, that deforestation are yes. driving some of the fires around yes. the world. Yes. Um, what about temperature increase? Uh, here in California, yes. the summers are getting drier. They are. Is, is, is that also a contributing factor?
0: It is. So in, in California, our research in the Sierra Nevada suggests that more extreme summer temperatures, especially daily temperatures, are leading to fires that are getting bigger, uh, and there's more area burned, but also more ignitions, that it's more easy for a human to make a mistake that normally would be, you could contain if there wasn't a heat wave, but if you're in the middle of a heat wave, any mistake you make with a chainsaw or anything on someone's property that are living in the the woodland area or in the wildland-urban interface, it's more likely to escape. So temperatures affect both the expansion of the fires, but also their ignition.
3: So let's talk about that damage and focus on California. Sure. Because there's a full range of impacts that these fires have. Yes. And when the fire is extinguished, that is not the end of the of yes. the problems. And I wonder if you could give us an overview
0: of all of the other knockoff effects that these fires are causing. Sure. I think that during the fire events you have smoke that's affecting remote cities. The transport of smoke is often hundreds of kilometers away. You'll have urban areas that are affected um, simultaneously. I think really important are evacuation events for places like California where you have really extreme fire behavior. It's an incredible pressure on a community to have to evacuate all the residents, including folks who are less mobile and who have challenges in terms of being able to move move out of an area. So I think that's a really important legacy of the fires. In you know, smaller communities, it can be a real challenge. Um, some of the larger cities, you can have clean rooms where people who have cardiovascular risk can go and get air that's clean. But in smaller communities, there often isn't that infrastructure. And so some of the places I've studied, uh, for example, in Alaska, it's a really important threat. You'll have a small village, and if it's near a wildfire, some of the elders, for example, have to be evacuated out to a larger city. So the health effects are quite severe. Um, I was involved in the study globally to estimate mortality from fires. And what we've found is that on the order of 300,000 people a year die, premature deaths from fires, uh, many of them in the tropics, but also many in the western U.S.
3: Right. It doesn't affect just California. You and I live in California, and so we can talk about that, but this is a global phenomenon. And this phrase was introduced, it was the first that I had heard it, um, called weather whiplash. Whiplash, yes. But I understand what it is. So you start with the really dry weather, and then... In California, if we're lucky, we get the rains because, because of course, we need the rains. We're usually under drought. We were for five years before the heavy rains came. So we need these rains. But then the problem is you make the land susceptible to not just to flooding, but to to sliding.
0: Yes. Yeah. And so one line of evidence that we have moderate confidence in with climate change is that we'll see more periods of drought followed by intense, really high rainfall, uh, winter storms both from season to uh, season, but also from year to year.
3: Can you describe, a, I don't think you even call it a mudslide, maybe you call it a landslide, but yeah. describe what happens when the forest is removed or just the sure. foliage is removed from some of the hills, say in, in Southern California.
0: Sure, yeah, so what typically happens is that uh, most of the vegetation is killed and the roots in an ecosystem, in these shrubland systems, they're really holding the soil together. These fine roots are growing through the soil, And once they die, uh, the microbes attack them and kill them, and so you lose this structure that's holding everything together. And simultaneously, any raindrop normally would hit a leaf and it would be dispersed, but all the raindrops directly hit the soil, so then they speed up. And when they speed up, they can start entraining more and more uh, particles and they can move faster. And so those things together, both the loss of the stability of the soil and the, the rapid response of the rain being able to channel more quickly into little rivulets and into streams, leads to these really tragic landslides like we saw following the Thomas fire. And so that threat can last until the vegetation regrows. So it can extend for um, years, if not decades, after a severe fire. You, you mentioned that one of the consequences of these
3: fires, you have the displacement of people, but there are also severe economic consequences. Yes. I mean, one of them, the rebuilding, yes. the loss of businesses. Yes. Yes. Um, but the other is what's happening to the utility. Sure,
0: Civic so gas and electric is one of the largest utilities in California. It serves much of Northern California. Uh, providing the electricity, and they have have a very sophisticated and um, extensive network of uh, power grid. Unfortunately, that's triggered a lot of fires, and there's an element here where climate has played a role. Now, with the hotter temperatures during uh, summer and fall, the fires that have been ignited from some of their equipment have triggered massive wildfires that have burned through communities, and so it's been noted in the press that this may be the first bankruptcy of a major corporation, uh, investor-owned utility, uh, by climate change because of the contribution of climate change to the intensifying fire regime in California.
3: Of course, some fire is important. It's important for uh, generating regrowth in in the forest. Um, When does it cross over the line to become
0: unmanageable? Right. In California, we're really concerned because the fire return times have been dropping. We're more and more frequent fires, and so fire is a critical part of the landscape But when we have more frequent fires, what we're really concerned with, when you add warming on top of that, will the forest recover? Right after a fire, the soils get very hot. They can get up to 40 or 50, 60 degrees Celsius, and that may actually prevent seeds from growing. And so that could create a barrier for the recovery of the forest.
3: Is it possible then uh, that we might see plants are obviously are going to be quite vulnerable and sensitive to yes. these the change in the number yeah. of fires. Is it possible you would see a migration of the forest the way that we do with animals who are responding to climate change? So maybe the forest would move because yes. they wouldn't be able to adapt quickly enough to these areas that are prone to frequent fires.
0: Absolutely. There's a concern that fires will actually push the forest up the slope in California so that you will actually have a replacement of oak woodlands with grasslands, and then you'll have a replacement of some of the pine forests and the firs with oak woodlands from the fires moving up. And I'm actually studying this uh, migration of fires as well in the Arctic. And so there, with these Siberian fires and with the fires across Alaska, we're seeing fires that are moving closer to tree line. And what's a little counterintuitive is that the more fires you have close to tree line, it actually can pull the forest up north with them. Because in order to have trees grow, you have to have soils that permit them to uh, have their seedlings grow and then be able to attain water. And normally their seeds desiccate, but when you have more fires on the landscape, the seeds of the trees do better. And we're really concerned about that because we want to keep the trees out of the Arctic. You want to keep trees out of tundra because if you have the ecosystem move north, one, it will be bad for caribou and all the animals that are living in the tundra. It'll be completely changing that biome. But two, um, normally that area is covered up by snow. And when the trees stick up above the snow, Then they actually contribute to additional warming, and it would actually accelerate things like the melting of the Greenland ice sheet. You'd be putting more heat into the system because the trees absorb more sunlight during the winter. They're covering up the snow. The
3: the mind really reels at the number of knockoff effects, doesn't it? Yes. Because as those forests move, then all the species move with them as well.
0: Yes, yes. But unfortunately, yeah, in a place like tundra or in the mountains of California, you're worried about pushing them off the edge. Really, there's um, very little soil up at the highest elevations, and so you're pushing ecosystems up, but they can't go there because there really isn't the soil to support the ecosystems. So it's a really it's a great challenge to think about how animals and plants will migrate and whether we assist them. And fires are really important part of that picture.
2: James Randerson, thank you so much for speaking with us.
0: My pleasure. You're welcome.
2: James Randerson, talking about how fire activity worldwide is changing due to climate change. He is an Earth System Scientist at the University of California, Irvine.
3: When it comes to preparing for rising waters and more destructive wildfires, Does this sound like
2: anyone you know?
1: Oh, I don't think nothing's gonna happen to me, so I don't need to prepare. And even if something does happen to me, somebody's gonna save the
4: day.
2: Meanwhile, Native American communities say they don't have the
4: luxury of waiting for assistance. Oftentimes, the relationships we have with different levels of government outside of our communities are not adequate for the coordination we need.
3: All of that next. It's Climate Change on Big Picture Science.
2: After a disaster happens, we ask, what could have been done to avert it? If it's the result of changing climate, more intense flooding, more severe drought, more powerful hurricanes, well, we can't say we didn't know it was coming. Scientists warned us decades ago. Still, it often takes a disaster to motivate us to act. Hurricane Sandy is more than 200
0: miles off the coast and is about to crash into two other systems when it makes landfall.
3: As oceans and and rivers rise, communities no longer have the luxury of waiting to respond. A new generation of scientists is committed to helping them prepare for continued
2: changes to come.
1: My name is Victor Rodriguez, and I am a Ph.D. student at Carnegie Mellon University in the Department of Engineering and Public Policy.
2: You may have heard the term climate change resilience. It's a hot topic now, but it also may seem a bit vague. Mr. Rodriguez's job is to clarify this concept and make it palpable by identifying solutions that can be adopted by high-risk communities. Did you know that there are now climate change resilience officers in more than 100 cities worldwide? Well, I didn't, not before hearing this next interview.
3: They're part of the 100 Resilient Cities program funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. It's the sort of program that reflects the shifting political landscape in the face of subsiding coastlines and rising waters, says Mr. Rodriguez. But still, he says, it is a challenge getting people to prepare for the future.
1: You know, in New York City, when Hurricane Sandy you know, hit, it pretty much shut down the whole city for about a whole week where like, I used to live in Manhattan, New York, in, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and the landlord said that the basement and the first level completely flooded, and that all the cars on the street you know, were not accessible. So one can just imagine how much money and how much time it'll take to clean all of that. Um, So it just affects every aspect of your life in in terms of, you know, flooding and subways and stuff so you can't even get to work, which causes, you know, billions of dollars, um, hundreds of billions of dollars for just one disaster.
3: Sticking with Hurricane Sandy for a moment, haven't you written that that was a pivotal moment, um, an inflection point for New York City and for that um, East Coast, because their whole thinking about climate change was radically changed. Because Mm -hmm. of that disaster, it took a disaster before people realized, okay, this could really affect us.
1: Yeah, at every level of the government, we could see that that disaster in particular really changed how a lot of people thought about what a climate disaster can do. You know, because before that disaster even happened, there was not really any funding in place or any positions in place for New York City to even conceptualize what would we do in terms of you know a disaster of this caliber. I mean, I know New York City has you know their plans of what they would do for, you know, disasters, but nothing of the caliber of Hurricane Sandy. It really took that disaster to really get the gears rolling for people to do something about it. You know, one of my favorite quotes by the boxer um, Mike Tyson, he says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So I think that, you know, in terms of, of climate disasters, everybody thinks they have a plan until the disaster actually happens and realize that, oh, this is a lot worse than I thought it could have been. And there's a lot of biases in terms of, you know oh, I don't think nothing's going to happen to me, so I don't need to prepare. And even if something does happen to me, somebody's going to save the day. And all of those things are unfortunately not true.
3: If I have this right, it sounds like the disaster is what releases the funds. The disaster is what gets people to change public policy. Now, I should say, you work in another big city which has been affected by climate change now. It's unfolding now, Miami. Uh, Mm -hmm. Can you give us an overview of the the wake-up call that that coastal city has had?
1: So, Miami really just faces the threat of sea level rise and affecting these homes. So that's like the long-term effects of, of sea level rise. There's videos that you can see online of like in the middle of the day, the waters is rising of, out of the sewer system. And, and um, I even saw a video of, of just fishes in the middle of the street just because, you know, just everyday uh, sea level rise.
3: Can you give me an overview of what your job is at the intersect of mechanical engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon? What is your central challenge as you approach this concept of climate change resilience?
1: Yeah, so my undergrad degree was in um, mechanical engineering, and that's why I became interested in the role of how engineers can influence policymaking. I'm more so focusing on sort of what are the barriers to being resilient and what are your options. So I think right now, people don't necessarily know what to do. Um, At state level efforts, one major thing that communities are beginning to do is hire a position titled the resilience officers. It's similar to what you would think of in terms of sustainability officers, but resilience officers focused on allocating funds and things of that nature and providing resources for, for their constituents in order to address climate change and and their options for resilience. So some of those options include engineering your way through it. So that's not necessarily a bad idea. Um, Sometimes you need to just engineer your way through it just because of your location. So within New York City, like for instance, Manhattan, the um, financial district might decide that they want to engineer their way through it because number one, they could afford it. And number two, um, there's a lot already in that place that to move that is not logistically feasible but then to
3: move wall street
1: (laughs) yeah to move wall street yeah let's move all those buildings and all those people away from that area i think that they more so can afford to engineer their way through it but then when you look at the outskirts of new york city like um like coney island or like the beach areas or like areas of like staten island long island um more so away from the dense area of central uh, new york city um those areas Number one, they might not be able to afford, you know, to engineer their way through it. So in those areas, options like managed retreat might be more feasible.
3: When you say mm-hmm. managed retreat, I'm assuming we have to, communities need to move away from the shoreline, from the shore. Mm-hmm. And and how far? What is the safe distance? Are you saying move a mile, move 10 miles, move inland?
1: Yeah, so sometimes one mile may work, sometimes 10 miles is the option. But there's been examples of people moving one community to another and moving them to a worse off area. So I think that every community is different. Those are some of the things that I'm beginning to look into right now in terms of where do you actually move these people? And if you actually do move these people, where is the best place to move them? But I think more so than an engineering problem, this is really a public policy problem. And the reason I say that is because, first of all, they have to come up with the funding in order to buy these people out to move them to a different area but then also what do you do with the area that you move them away from do you stop people from building there or do you allow other people to move in and build there with certain standards or, or certain uh, regulations in place? And if that does end up happening, how do the few people that moved away from there feel about that happening? So there's a lot of public policy issues that have to be addressed within this context.
3: You're talking about public policy, Victor, but, but moments ago you talked about uh, engineering your way out of it. What are the options <laughs> on the table Walls, canals, uh, risers, what what are we talking about?
1: So this is actually really interesting. So New York City is one of the prime examples of what you can do with in terms of engineering your way out of it. So New York City right now is in the process of funding and soon to start building a 1.5 it's 1.4, 1.5, it keeps going up every time I check. A billion dollar flood wall, essentially, where the Manhattan area, so the lower Manhattan area, so like Wall Street, that U, you could think of that U area, they're building pretty much a flood wall along that whole area, the whole coastal line. I think up to eight or 10 feet of walls. So that's, you know, $1.5 billion just to cover, you know, maybe three miles of wall to protect from sea level rise. So that's an extreme example of how you can engineer your way through it.
3: One of your jobs has been to address the psychological barriers to preparing for climate change, and you've addressed some of them in this conversation. But can you give us an overview of the kind of psychological barriers that you're coming across when you're talking to communities about preparing for the future?
1: So some of the psychological barriers to begin with, you know, people tend to forget quickly about what happened to them. So sometimes when you talk to people I know that still live in that area, they think that Hurricane Sandy was a once in a hundred that cannot happen to them again so they're not too concerned so they're going on with their daily everyday activities so that's one of the huge things that people don't believe that this can happen to them again but I think even before that um, a lot of the people that are uh, affected when when you're talking about a climate disaster or some of the uh, low-income areas of a city so that is because the people that actually can afford to leave They could afford to leave somewhere for a few days or forever. They could just sell their property and leave because they have the economic means to do so. But the people that can't afford to leave because they rent in that area or they don't have the money or so on and so forth, they tend to not even focus on climate change as an issue because there's a lot of other issues that they have to face with in terms of like, do I have money to feed my children or my family today? Do I have work? You know, um, can I pay my bills? There's a lot of other issues that people are facing to begin with, so then to add climate disasters to Those issues, I think it's something that a lot of people don't even think about until it actually happens, and then they just think, all right, well, now I just figure it out. Describe
3: for us how you go into these communities and how you talk to people. Do you go to a community meeting? Do you go door to door? Uh, Do you go through official channels and go to City Hall? How do you interact with these communities that you are trying to help?
1: So, for New York City in particular, what I did first was go to the um, City Hall meeting where they discussed this actual project that they were proposing. Because before that, I didn't know if people actually, it sounded good on paper and people actually wanted this to happen. I was like, oh wow, this is really interesting and this is really useful. But then you go into these settings and you actually hear the people talk about these ideas and you, you begin to realize that, oh, there's a lot of other issues that you didn't even think about. What
3: is one issue that when you went to one of these meetings and an issue came up and you thought, I hadn't thought of that. Can you give us an example of one issue?
1: One of the issues that what was really interesting to me was that where this flood wall wants to happen is this park there. It's the East Coast Park. It's a few miles long. People run there. There's baseball fields, there's track fields, and so on and so forth. It's just a really nice area where you can look over the Hudson River, and there's also a lot of parks and stuff in that area. And that's where they want to build this wall at. But they want to shut down that park for like four years or five years, however long it takes to build this. That was the main issue that people had in the area. So it may be hard to understand, though, why why do people care about a park so much when you have a disaster like Hurricane Sandy that can really affect you? But, you know, in terms of like mental health and in terms of the things that we take for granted, some of those are some of those things that people really care about. It's like, you know, we want access to these parks. We want access to, you know, in the summertime shading and not everybody in the city has air conditioners. So they go to the park because there's trees and shading and stuff like that. And one of the other issues, too, is they wanted to dump a lot of dirt to build this wall up like eight to ten feet. But the issue with that is people are like, there's a lot of people with asthma here. And actually when 9-11 happened, a lot of the people in this community actually have respiratory issues because of all the debris that was falling. So they're thinking, all right, you're going to have dirt here flying, you know, from the crosswinds and it's going to go into our communities. Is that going to affect our respiratory health even further? So some of those are some of the issues that you don't even think about when you look at this on paper. And when you go to these settings and you start to listen and you're like, there are other issues that people actually care about. And that's why the stakeholder engagement process is so important, because then you can go to these communities and see how they feel about these things. So then you can, you know, work your way around it or engage with them in a way that, you know, both parties can compromise.
3: Victor Rodriguez, thank you so much for talking to us. And I, for one, are are glad that you're on the front lines (laughs) taking us into the future and addressing these big questions about how we will continue to prepare for climate change. Thank you for speaking with us.
1: Thank
2: you. Victor Rodriguez is a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon University in the Department of Engineering and Public Policy.
4: Indigenous peoples are among the communities most affected by climate change today. But indigenous people also have some of the most innovative solutions for how to address climate change. I'm Kyle White and I'm a professor and Timnick Chair in the Departments of Philosophy and Community Sustainability at Michigan State University. I'm an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation.
2: Kyle, uh, for Native American communities, climate change is not
4: really a new issue. How so? Absolutely, so I often tell people that climate science for a lot of indigenous people is one of our oldest sciences because we were always studying how it is that society has to adjust to deal with changing temperature, changing rainfall. And so for us, we've always been thinking about what does it mean to live well in an environment that's changing?
2: Would you say that Native communities are especially vulnerable to climate change? I mean, uh, simply because they may, I don't know, the, the, the lifestyle there may be closer to the effects of climate change?
4: You know, some people make a point, and it's not that it's false. The fact that a lot of Indigenous people live lives that are closely connected with the land, that that's what makes them vulnerable to climate change. But I don't necessarily think that's the right answer. You know, a lot of times indigenous people, their biggest concern is that they've been squeezed into tiny land areas like reservations. And those areas are a fraction of the size of the land that they once had before the United States. And so if you're living in a tiny, tiny area, the environment's changing around you, it can be really hard to adapt to those changes because you don't have a lot of capacity to move.
2: In other words, you're not buffered. I mean, there's no, you know, sort of the, the the
4: back forty is also the front forty kind of thing. That's exactly right. And added on to that, the best way to be an environmental steward is to also be well networked in with everybody around you so that you can have the relationships in place to be able to respond to change. But oftentimes the relationships we have with different levels of government outside of our communities are not adequate for the coordination we need.
2: You've written that the dire future that many people portray as our climate future, right? It's going to get worse. A kind of dystopia really is often not shared by uh, tribal peoples because the adverse conditions caused by climate change are similar to some that the natives have already endured. Now, maybe you could explain that to me.
4: So in our history, we were people who lived by the seasons. We had seasonal calendars, and we actually stewarded entire landscapes using techniques like burning, and we developed a lot of sustainability in that time. But U.S. colonialism completely defaced the landscape. It completely changed the water system in the area to the point where our ancestors would not recognize very much about the environment today. And so for us, our environments have been so changed and so degraded that it's like we've already been through a great upheaval and a great level of environmental transformation. And in that sense, we're already in the environmental dystopia. We've already passed into the catastrophe and are trying to find a way out of it.
2: Well, okay, given that you have a head start on catastrophe here because of the prior experience, In particular, maybe you could give me examples of the kind of things you might do in the case of the Potawatomi in Oklahoma. I mean, what specific problems are they confronting there?
4: Potawatomi, like other tribes in Oklahoma, are facing issues with drought. We're facing, obviously, still threats tied to the extractive industries, to oil and gas. We're trying to figure out ways to protect our agriculture and to protect our water systems. And so those are some of the key things that I know that Oklahoma tribes are thinking about. But we're also developing a lot of innovative solutions. Um, Tribes are beginning to think about what does it actually mean to be a good environmental steward? And we're trying to actually repair relationships that we have with plants and animals, such as corn or eagles. Because the reason why we're in this mess with climate change is because some people in the world didn't value those relationships. They didn't really care about their relationships with the non-human world. And so we're seeking to model what it would mean to have those caring relationships as part of a solution to climate change.
2: Now, presumably, whatever mitigation you attempt requires money. And, uh, you know, is that all on you? Or I mean, do, the, do the feds help out at all? Does the state help out at all?
4: Well, for federally recognized tribes, which are tribes that the US government recognizes also as sovereign, there's over 570 of us, we have a very close relationship, sometimes good, sometimes not good, with a number of federal programs. And so there is federal funding to support climate change. There's not enough for it to fully support the types of climate change plans that tribes need. But tribes are constantly campaigning the federal government to create more support. And I'm part of organizing a number of different trainings, such as the tribal climate camp that seeks to empower tribes to find ways to use multiple funding sources to support their climate change planning. So we're working hard to try to make it happen, even though sometimes the federal money isn't quite enough.
2: And you're doing this together with some of these other 500 and so tribes, right? I mean, this isn't each tribe does its own thing.
4: That's right. And that's what makes it challenging, but also inspiring. Um, I was an author on the last uh, U.S. National Climate Assessment. And in our chapter just devoted to tribes and indigenous people, we identified over 800 actions that tribes are taking in the United States to address climate change. And a colleague of mine who's tracking. This study says that now there's, I think, about 1,100 examples.
2: My goodness. Well, can you give me an example of the kind of initiatives you're talking about? I mean, if there are 1,100, give me me an example (laughs) so so I have some idea what you're talking about here.
4: So I'd encourage people to look at what the Swinomish tribe is doing. For some years now, they've been trying to examine how the harvesting of shellfish in traditional ways is related to having good health. And by good health, I mean both physical good health but cultural and mental good health. And they're showing that climate change is potentially affecting their members' ability to continue those traditions. And the community itself worked with some scientists that are employed by the tribe to develop a model of how they understand their own health and how it's related to climate change and how it's related to the best science.
2: Well, finally, Kyle, what is an underreported or even misreported issue that you would like people to know more about here?
4: While it is widely reported now that indigenous people are vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. It's not widely reported that there are serious risks to indigenous people from the supposed solutions to climate change, like the renewable energy technologies. And whether it's hydropower, solar, wind power, you name it, any of the solutions to climate change also pose risks to indigenous people because many of those solutions are large land use projects and can lead to the displacement of indigenous people or to situations where indigenous people don't get a chance to participate at the same level in the benefits of those energy systems.
2: So in other words, you're worried that the, if they're gonna build a big solar farm that they might take the land away from the the tribes? I mean, is that is that a real possibility?
4: It's a real possibility and I think for People who might be listening, if they just do a Google search, they'll find there's a growing and respectable academic literature that's documenting some of these cases where just that type of scenario happens.
2: My goodness. Well, Kyle White, thank you so very much for speaking with us.
4: Thank you. It's great to share with the audience.
3: Kyle White is a professor of philosophy and community sustainability at Michigan State University, and he is a tribal member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. You know, it should be pointed out, too, that we're hearing a lot about stories of adaptation, but adaptation isn't enough if we don't continue to address warming, because no matter how bad it is, it can get worse. So we need to continue to reduce those emissions.
2: Yeah, it's not enough to fix the current problems, but we have to forestall any problems that develop in the future, and there will be some. Well, we have a lot on our plates for sure, but other dangers loom. Changing patterns of infectious diseases, for example.
5: As things warm up, we're seeing animals and their vectors move further north and carry everything with them. Dengue, for example, now seems to have outbreaks almost all around the world at almost any time of the year. It's Climate Changed on Big Picture Science.
2: We're talking about the kind of climate change adaptation and response that's taking place out there now. But there's also another threat in the news that requires a response.
3: So the CDC has
4: confirmed another case of the coronavirus here in the U.S. This time it's in. At
2: the time
3: of this program, the coronavirus had infected more than 43,000 people and claimed more than 1,000 lives, mainly in China, although it had spread to four continents. There is no sign yet that the epidemic is slowing.
2: Like climate change, this health emergency requires a global response. But is the outbreak of coronavirus a phenomenon wholly separate from what's happening to our climate? Warmer temperatures are shifting patterns of infectious disease, says Tracy Goldstein, a professor of pathology, microbiology, and immunology at the School for Veterinary Medicine at the University of California, Davis. Coronavirus fits and doesn't fit some larger patterns.
3: She describes what you can do to be prepared for coronavirus, how all of us should brace for new infections, and how the most recent health emergency compares to one of the deadliest pandemics in recent memory, the 1918 Spanish
5: flu. The thing that's different about influenza is that flu is really easily shared between people. So it's very catchy between people. And that's one of the reasons that it caused such a big pandemic, because not only did it come with people when they traveled, but it was very quickly passed between people. And so far, this coronavirus doesn't seem to move between people as well. Um, That could change. So we definitely want to be concerned. But it doesn't seem to be as good as the flu is from infecting
2: between people. What, what determines that? I mean, uh, what makes a virus particularly catching, if you will?
5: Yeah, that's a really good question. This virus so far seems to be shared by respiratory droplets. So that means people have to be pretty close to each other to to get it. And it also can survive on surfaces. So that's, again, why people say to wash your hands. Influenza, I think, maybe can just travel slightly further as people cough because you just sort of are more ill sometimes with influenza. And so you're able to infect people
2: further apart. Can I ask you about the name coronavirus? I mean, I've seen this a microscope photo of this thing, and it just looks like a bunch of, you know, balls. Well, they look like circles in the photo. Is it just coronavirus because it kind of looks like a, you know, a crown, a halo?
5: So coronavirus is actually a group or a family of viruses. There's many in them, and in fact, many of them have affected people for many years, and they do cause things like the common cold. One of the reasons they have the word corona is it has a number of proteins around the outside that makes it look like a crown. So that's how it got that name. But really, this is a group of viruses that have infected animals and people for many, many years. The first severe one in this group was SARS that affected people in 2002, 2003. And then MERS was another one in 2012 that was a severe one. And this is now the third one. However, there are others that are more benign that cause the common cold that many of us probably have each year and don't even realize that we have it.
2: You know, unlike bacterial infections where you can get an, well, antibiotic, we generally don't have drugs that can do much against viruses, I think. So if I were in the hospital with coronavirus, it isn't that they would come in with some sort of, I don't know, some drug and shoot it into me. What would they do?
5: Yeah. I mean, most of it is supportive care. Um, People who are having trouble breathing, they're making sure that they're on respirators, getting oxygen, um, fluids to keep them hydrated, and food if they're able to eat. You know, it really is supportive care.
2: What about a vaccine? At least that would... Prevent future cases. I assume people are working pretty hard on that. Any progress?
5: Yeah, that's a good question. So, after the SARS outbreak, there was a vaccine that was um, in development. And, you know, research for this sort of thing waxes and wanes. You know, times like now, when we have an outbreak, it brings to, you know, high um, level attention again that we need to be investing in that. But the vaccine that they'd had had been sort of slowed. And potentially, if that work had continued to be supportive, we may have had a vaccine right now that could have protected people. So um, what I understand is it is going into phase one trials, but that's still quite a ways off from actually having a vaccine. But, of course, things are changing every day, and it's possible that there might be one in the future.
2: Well, that brings me to questions about the preparedness in the United States. The Trump administration has declared a public health emergency here and has imposed, you know, entry restrictions and quarantines. But at the same time, the administration Slash the budget for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and its infectious disease research by $1.3 billion. That's That's 20% below the last year's level. Can you give us a sense of what things we rely on or need our government to do when an epidemic hits? I mean, this, this, to, to what extent does this cripple our response?
5: Well, I think the CDC is doing a really good job responding. I think that they are monitoring people at borders. They have been doing a lot of testing. They've also been supporting other labs um, to come online, for example, here in California. So I think in terms of this response, there is no adverse effects that I think our public health system here is responding at the highest level. I think the bigger question is sort of long-term, you know, funding to support programs that we can always be prepared for the next thing is something that we should be, you know, trying to think about and, and hopefully have talked to
2: our Congress people to support that. Tracy, you're an expert in infectious disease and climate change. Is the coronavirus, the spread of it in any case, is that related to climate change in any way?
5: I think the thing that's changing about our world is where people go and where animals live. So when when these outbreaks occur, these viruses have to be able to infect human cells. So that's the first thing, right? They have to have that machinery. But then, if they're coming from animals, people have to be able to come into contact with animals in order for that virus to be able to spill over into people. And so I think it's that contact that's changing. We as humans are really expanding where we live. We're, as our populations increase, we're cutting down forests. We're going into caves. We're going into natural areas where we didn't used to go. And that is bringing us into contact with new animals and their viruses. And that is what is allowing for spillover to occur. Some of those things. are climate related and some of those things are not climate related.
2: But on the one hand, you have air travel, which means, of course, you know, to the extent that this stuff is spread by you know, humans to other humans, of course, that's going to increase the problem. But I, I kind of wonder whether climate change related things might do something similar. I mean, the Northwest Passage is becoming, well, a passage. You know, the ice is melting in the Arctic, and that means that critters that would never encounter one another, you know, on the Atlantic and the Pacific sides of uh, North America, there now come in contact. Is, is that going to have any effect on these kinds of diseases?
5: Yeah, so some other work that I've been doing has been looking at a virus called distemper virus, foscent distemper virus, that kills seals in, um, in Europe, in the Atlantic. It's caused large outbreaks there. And we actually were able to detect that in many different ice seals, and set of sea lions, and first seal species in Alaska. And when we did the analysis that looked like the movement of the virus from the Atlantic into the Pacific was linked with years where there was loss of sea ice. And we think that that allowed passages in the ice for animals to move and come in contact and bring the virus with them. Now that's an example of a virus that moved from one ocean to another ocean in animals, but presumably as ice changes and there's less of it, People and other animals will come into more contact with each other, and along with them, the viruses that they carry. So I think we're going to start to see more and more of those examples as we lose the ice in the Arctic and the Antarctic.
2: So it's becoming a one world for disease
5: I think so. I mean, I think on the human side, you already pointed out, you know, we get on a plane, we can move things around very quickly. The animals are able to, in some situations, start to do that as well when there are these sort of channels that are opening up, allowing them to move further. They may be moving further looking for food or for other habitat to haul out and rest on, and all of that is sort of changing the dynamics of where they live, where they move, and what they bring with them.
2: What about the effect of uh, just the warming itself, the fact that, I don't know, the southern parts of our country are becoming tropical and uh, they're therefore susceptible to tropical diseases, right?
5: Yeah, you know, on the animal side, back to the animals in the ocean, as the oceans are warmer, their food is moving and they're having to swim much further and, and they're showing up in places where they didn't used to go. On land, we're seeing viruses or bacteria even that maybe used to live on say fleas that like to be in certain areas, as it's warmer in higher areas those vectors are, are able to move and bring with them their viruses and bacteria. So dengue for example now seems to have outbreaks almost all around the world at almost any time in the year, whereas it used to be that it wasn't um, always present because the vector wasn't always present. So certainly as things warm up, we're seeing animals and their vectors move further north and carry everything with them.
2: My goodness. So do you think, Tracy, that uh, from the standpoint of disease in any case, the world is becoming a more dangerous place because of climate change?
5: I think that, you know, our technology is better and we're able to detect things better. So I think that's sort of the first thing. As climate is changing, we should assume that the distribution of diseases is changing as well. So I think the important take home there is to not be surprised by that and be prepared for that. You know, we've done some work recently to show that we found Marburg virus in bats in West Africa. That was 2,700 kilometers west of where it had been found previously. The important thing about that is that means that these viruses are probably more distributed than what we previously thought. And we should have that on our list of things when we are looking for what can cause disease and also have labs be prepared to be able to test things so that we can stop being surprised and be better prepared.
2: Tracy Goldstein, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
3: Thank you for having me. Tracy Goldstein is a professor of pathology, microbiology, and immunology at the School for Veterinary Medicine at the University of California, Davis.
2: So the big picture that we're hearing in this episode has to do with the fact that, you know, we've moved beyond the debate, at least most of us have, of whether climate change is occurring and and moving in the direction of how are we going to deal with it. And what we've heard is that there are so many things that are affected by climate change. Our response has got to go way beyond just controlling the warming. I mean, there, there are many other things. And, uh, you know, th- this is going to have to prompt responses at all levels of the government, but also industry, individuals. I mean, this is a big deal.
3: The, the other big picture theme here is that while we can engineer our way out of some situations. We can't engineer our way out of this mess entirely. Victor Rodriguez said that a seawall could be built for part of Manhattan, but that would just be a segment of Manhattan. Poorer communities, they can't afford the wall. They can't afford to move. And we heard from Kyle White that even renewables have a footprint that we need to be aware of. So we need to adapt. We need to be considerate about how we're adapting, and we need to continue to fight warming.
2: You know, it's probably hyperbolic to say this, but I suspect that a 1,000 years from now, people will look back on the 21st century as the century in which they dealt with this really existential threat.
3: Dr. Goldstein was summing up our attitude towards infectious disease preparedness, but she really summed up what could be advice regarding our collective response to all these climate change emergencies. She said, stop being surprised and be better prepared. I don't know if there's a better big picture summary than that. Well, thank you to those who help deal with the challenges of this show every week. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
2: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including the meteorology of Mars. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer Seth Shostak, and I am thinking about a wind generator from my backyard.
3: This episode of Big Picture Science is called Climate Changed. If you want to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find past episodes in our archive at BigPictureScience.org, and you'll find links there to the guests you heard.
2: And you may be listening to our radio show, but did you know you can also listen to Sci by subscribing to the Sci podcast. You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us.
0: Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.